Welcome to the Mere and Powerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Powerful Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Pape. And I'm Rebecca Pape. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you. On this episode, uh, this fantastic episode I'm going to add, we sit down with Jeremy Courtney, who is the founder and CEO of Preemptive Love. Jeremy and his wife, Jessica, and their two kids live in Iraq, and together they have been running Preemptive Love for the past 15 years with a mission to end war. Big, big vision. Uh, We talked a lot about that. Uh, What kind of stuck out to you, Brian, as our conversation unfolded? Oh, just the, you know, not having everything buttoned up right when he started his, his nonprofit and, and the mission of preemptive love uh, becoming more and more distilled and clear over time and then kind of owning that and leaning into that, which I thought was uh, really great. Because I think oftentimes people think companies and nonprofits are perfectly baked from day one, but mm-hmm. it's about building on the foundation of the ideas and then distilling and clarifying those over the time. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated uh, that part of the conversation. He mentioned that in in that on that topic is uh, that you don't get what you don't aim for, mm-hmm. and I thought that was I don't know just a good a good summation of you know how can you expect results for anything in your life if you're not aiming toward that that thing. Yeah. Um, you have to define it to be able to achieve it. Um, preemptive love funds generational work. We talk about the long term. Um, aspect to achieving a mission as big as ending war and the need to to live upstream by asking you know not the small questions but the big questions he called them the billion dollar questions um he also kind of framed up the year of 2020 as a year of all of us really being on the cusp of massive leaps forward in terms of our empathy and acceptance of one another which i thought was really powerful and kind of it kind of non-intuitive or non yeah Yeah, people aren't looking at that way right now i'd say yeah the um we kind of talk about this with our team but basically setting impossible goals and then catching up to them you know because oftentimes that's the whole point of a goal is something that you will attain later um so it was it was a wide-ranging conversation um from from his life and how he got to where he is um starting preemptive love the other thing that we should note that uh, we didn't touch base on in the episode necessarily was that Primitive Love uh, came about uh, or came onto our radar, I should say, um, many different ways. It was kind of cool to see all these pieces come together. But we were first exposed to Primitive Love at, a, at an auction of another nonprofit that we've supported in the past, One Day's Wages, uh, where there was a video of, of Jeremy and they were doing heart surgeries for children in Iraq. And I just remember that video touching us and uh, us being kind of just kind of amazed by this organization's work. And then more recently, uh, the current air project, so our artist in residence uh, right now is uh, is Dana Tanamachi, and she has put together a beautiful collection on mirror.com. And $5 of every item that we are selling is going to Preemptive Love. And she was adamant that we funded Preemptive Love out of this artist in residence uh, project. And so we're happy to do that. And so just know that uh, when you purchase the Dana Tanamachi collection, you are supporting Preemptive love. We mm-hmm. encourage you to support them additionally um, if you are so moved. And also our, our uh, brand ambassador and, uh, and friend, uh, Propaganda, is on their board of directors. So a lot of worlds collided uh, for this episode to come together. And he tuned in from Iraq, which was really cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Technology is just amazing these days, y'all. Uh, Jeremy's a two-time author. He wrote Preemptive Love, Pursuing Peace One Heart at a Time. 
as well as Love Anyway, An Invitation Beyond a World That's Scary as Hell. Uh, those are two additional ways you can get to know Jeremy and his work better, as well as a really compelling 30-minute film that's um, on their website, preemptivelove.org. Yes. So we're excited to share this conversation with you. We're so grateful to Jeremy for taking uh, time out of his day to um, just share who he is with us. Absolutely. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. Without further ado, Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy, so nice to meet you. Likewise, thank you all for uh, reaching out. Thanks for setting it up and honored to be a part of the partnership too. Heck yeah, we, uh, we, I feel like we have so many connections, like our worlds are finally, intertw- they're, they're intertwined, we're finally meeting face to face. I feel like we have uh, a lot of awesome mutual connections. For, I think we first, Beck and I were just chatting before the show notes about you first were in because i first heard of preemptive love when i was volunteering at one day's wages oh cool we're good friends with eugene cho and i think it might have been the first grant with you all i want to say it was like a micro grant um and at the time anyway i believe you were funding heart surgeries for children in iraq yeah that's how we started okay okay so in your earlier years then. And, uh, I don't know, fast forward to now. And, um, we are your friends. I think props on your board. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Props on your board. And, um, gosh, who else? I was trying to think of, yeah, Eugene prop. Well, and then I don't know if you've met Dana, but she's a huge fan of yours as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Anyway, you have many, many fans as I'm sure you're aware, but, uh, it's definitely an honor to sit down with you. I feel, uh, I feel, uh, not not quite uh, worthy of of, uh, of your time after watching the film uh, that you guys have on your website. It's your work is so inspiring, man. Oh, thanks so much. I'm glad you got to see it. And I mean, gosh, we feel the same. Any other moment, uh, I would have a mirror mug or something in front of me. I happen to have a see-through glass with me right now, but that's that's the that's uncommon. It's all good. I love that photo you sent through with prop with the uh, the porigami and in action on a you were you were in a lake in Iraq. Is that where? Yeah, yeah, we were camping out overnight at a, na- a lake in northern Iraq. Oh, that's so awesome. Love it. And what? where are you now? Uh, I'm at home in Iraq, yeah. Okay, what city? Uh, we live north of Baghdad. Uh, okay. A, a, about maybe six hours or four, four to six hours as the crow flies in an area okay. called Sulaymaniyah. Okay, not that I would know the name of the city, but... <laughs> That's it helps to feel like, you know, we know where, and you guys, are you in Seattle then? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're in the Fremont neighborhood. So kind of near the university of Washington, actually Fremont I'm, is considered the center of the universe. Is that self, right? Self-described center of the yeah. universe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed to say I've never been to Seattle. Wow. I know. It's like, how did that happen? But I've never <laughs> been to Seattle. Where did, where did you grow up? I mean, we'll get into this on the show, but I'm, I'm curious. Where did you grow up? Uh, Denver and Austin primarily. Okay. Yeah, I was your born, wife was from the middle uh, of Texas too, right? Or that's where she yeah. Was yeah. I was born yeah. in, I was born in LA, moved to Denver real young and then Austin in like um, middle school. I would say you've probably heard this, but Seattle is similar to Denver. I mean, we're at sea level and there's a lot more water, bodies of water. Yeah, besides those mass but, differences. But similar in terms of, <laughs> yeah, in terms of, you know, landscape, you look out and there's, you know, mount, there are mountains somewhere. and That's true. There are big mountains. Um, I don't know, just big open sky and 
that sort of thing. I'm going to have to make it happen. Whenever we all travel again, got to figure it out. You're telling me. We had uh, our head of accounting flew. Gosh, where did he fly? I think he flew back to Chicago to see some family. And I was like, what? What was it like? How was it flying on a plane? <laughs> Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. yeah. A whole new world. It's yeah. like, what is it like? Like talking to someone in the 50s or 60s who, when you're hearing about flying for the first time. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Were you traveling a lot before the pandemic? Oh, so or, much. Yeah. yeah. I Last year, I probably traveled. I Gosh, I probably traveled every two to three weeks outside of Iraq last year. I like it was about 50 50 you know it felt like yeah yeah it's a so, lot of it's it's crazy to go from travel to no travel and just that whole time or this whole time I should say because we haven't really been traveling that much but to go from on a plane all the time to at home it's, just, it's well awesome. and it's just it's an adjustment for everybody it's like so for you guys because you normally travel a lot too it's like how do you continue to how do you make those connections that you would have made in person virtually? And then your, you know, your family is accustomed to you coming and going. So then how do you maintain those relationships mm-hmm. without driving anybody crazy? <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of unspoken stuff that you just didn't say right there that I think we all know very well. So. Like we kind of like it when you travel, Brian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you when and you Jessica know again? exactly how it is. You oh, guys know how it is. Too funny. Uh, awesome. Well, is there anything before we get started? Is there anything you want to uh, put on the show? I mean, we'll, we'll obviously touch on your foundings and what you're doing at Preemptive Love, touch on Beirut, the Dana Tanamachi collab, but anything else you want us to touch on? No, I think that sounds good. Anything you don't want us to chat about or are you just no. so tired of talking about it? Um, <laughs> we're, we're open book wherever you want to go. Let's just cool. let it flow. Awesome. Great. Um, Cool. Hey, and we know it's late for you, so yeah. um, we won't keep you up till like two a.m. or anything like that. Yeah, we'll try. We'll try our best to stick to an hour if that sounds good to you. Yeah, good to go. Okay, Henry, I'm recording on the uh, Zoom H6, so we're ready. We're ready. Uh, are you ready? You recording? No, I got. Yeah, I got all that that we've done so far. Looks oh, like cool. it's. Rocking. All right, so we'll I'll um we'll kick things off here in a few seconds. I'll just welcome you to the show, and then at the end we have uh, some rapid oh, fire yeah. questions that Beck usually goes through, and then at the end we'll sign off, but don't actually af- actually sign off. So we'll just pretend sign off, and then we can uh, wrap things up after that. So cool, awesome, uh, cool. Everybody ready? We'll uh, get started here. Let me just note the time on the Zoom. Awesome. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, staying up late in your time zone and, and joining us on the Powerful Podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, I am very excited to sit down and have a conversation with you uh, about your work, your life, and uh, the, the partnership that's Mir, that Mir and Preemptive Love and Dana Tanamachi has had. Uh, but first, our guests uh, who are listening you, I think this is the first time we've had somebody in Iraq uh, on the podcast, which is which is kind of cool. Um, oh, we can say that with confidence. Yes, yes, <laughs> you are in Iraq, north of Baghdad. Um, so we'd love to uh, introduce our, our listeners to you of, of who you are and where you are and, and why you're doing what you are. Which I know is 
those are some big questions right there, but let's just start off and, and get to know each other a little bit better. Yeah. So my name is Jeremy Courtney, uh, founder of Preemptive Love Coalition. Been living in Iraq for the last 13 years. We moved here, uh, my wife, me, and our one-year-old daughter moved here in the middle of the Iraq War. Uh, 2007, I guess, was when we first fully moved in. That was kind of the height of civil war, height of sectarian conflict. And we moved in to see what we could do to be a part of, you know, help rebuild the country, turn over a new leaf. So we've been here working on humanitarian uh, relief and development work, working to end war for the last 13 years. I love how simple your mission statement is. Uh, I mean, I'm literally getting goosebumps just uh, thinking about being on your website and reading the show notes. But your mission statement is just to end war. Is that right? Yeah. Which is so big uh, and so noble and also feels so daunting. I mean, uh, you strike me as somebody who is uh, full of energy and optimist. How do you how do you how do you tackle such a big mission? Well, I, I think it's a couple of things. So for years, we probably were content with saying that our mission was bound up in our name, preemptive love, that that on some level, the very act of doing preemptive love or being preemptive love, meaning that that notion of where I, I jump forward to love you before you do anything to love me. I, I jump forward to serve you before you do anything to get me. The, the kind of subversion or turning on its head of the the thing that dragged us into this war in the first place, uh, which was a preemptive war, a preemptive strike, which was all predicated on fear. It was all predicated on this notion after September 11th that, that we didn't want to see the smoking gun of Saddam Hussein, at which time it would have been too late, right? Because that would have meant he had set off some mass destruction weapon and, and it was too late. So so out of a, out of a position of fear, we started a war and destroyed a country. And so we've kind of been asking since the beginning, what would it look like to live upstream against that? And so for the early years, preemptive love really was the mission itself. How do we love preemptively? Or how do we love others before they love us? Or how do we you know, go to hard places and things like that? It, it's only been more recently after doing this work for a decade uh, Iraq, and then seeing our work expand into Iran, Syria, Libya, um, working on the North Korean border, uh, now more recently into Mexico, Colombia, and Venezuela. It, it's only been more recently that we've gotten the courage to say, on the face of it, we exist to end war. Um, I guess that took some years, honestly, mm -hmm. to to say the thing that had been kind of quietly in our hearts, in my heart, at least. Um, I, I don't know that I had the boldness to say it or the clarity of mind and mission to say it so succinctly on day one. But, but having lived through enough cycles of violence now, having lived through on the front lines of some wars, um, I, I don't want to... Uh, how to say this? I, I don't want, I don't want to do the easy thing. I don't want to do the small thing. I want to aim for the big thing, because um, I'm I'm pretty 
I'm pretty sure at this point that you don't get what you don't aim for. You don't get what you don't work for. And so I want to set our sights and our aspirations on the big thing. And if we somehow fall a little bit short of that, well, let's see what we can accomplish on the way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it's, I think there's something beautiful about a, a nonprofit, a company, a vision, a, a, an idea not being fully flushed out from the very beginning. And, and I'm not um, necessarily putting this on you, but for us, we didn't have our mission statement clarified until really the last like four years, right? So we've been in business for 10 years and it was, you know, early on, it was just this idea of merging business and philanthropy of we wanted to use our skills and expertise in business, but then also do good without either starting a nonprofit, but else to, you know, to, to take some of our uh, revenue and to apply it towards amazing nonprofits like yourself. But we didn't really, our mission statement is that we exist to empower people for a better future, but that really didn't come into clarity until I think what, four years ago, five mm -hmm. years ago. And so, uh, yes, would we have loved to have that from day one? Uh, for sure. Yeah. Right. You know, and we've had all these kind of missteps with different products and whatnot, but at the same time, there's also been this like incredible journey of discovering ourselves, even though that kind of like that, that existence and that mission has always kind of been there in your hearts. And then over time it kind of gets exposed. And I think there's something just great about not having anything perfectly baked, perfectly flushed mm -hmm. out from the very beginning, except for the idea and that pursuit of the idea. Um, so I just, I love that, that you were willing to, to kind of throw that bold statement out there and, and, and aim for it in a sense and, and just put it out there on your website of just like, I read that and I was like, wow, that is, that is clear. It is direct. It's ambitious. It's, uh, it's, it's incredible. And it's courageous that yeah. to use the word you used, it's courageous. Okay. So you said in 2007, you and your wife had a one-year-old and you moved at that time to Iraq at the height of a civil war. What did your families say about that? And what did you say to each other about that as you made that transition? Yeah, so Iraq was our second stop along the way. Our first stop, the first place we moved after we got married and finished grad school, um, right after September 11th terror attacks, 2001, we moved to Turkey, which in the post 9-11 and the, the immediately post 9-11 world, Turkey wasn't the worst of all the worst in many people's minds, but a lot of Americans weren't being very nuanced in their thinking about Muslims in general. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our family, a lot of our friends, our, our neighbors, everywhere we came from, generally just lumped all Muslims into bad Muslims. And that was just kind of the way that people around us thought. So Turkey might as well have been the ISIS caliphate or the Taliban or something like that at the time. And so for us to leave home, leave the United States uh, in that environment and move to any Muslim country was so scary for people. Uh, their intentions were you know, good enough insofar as it goes. They were trying to be loving of us, trying to be protective of us, but it was all predicated on a lot of bigotry and a lot of ignorance. And um, so there was a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of fear over us moving to Turkey. We lived in a very European part of town. Um, we were extremely welcomed by our neighbors. Everyone was kind. It was a life-transforming experience in all the best ways. But that was the real dust up with family for us was moving overseas. 
for the very first time. And after living in Turkey for a couple of years, both sets of parents came to visit. Um, both sets of parents got to see a Muslim country for what it is on its own terms, on its own turf. And that really changed the way our parents thought about Muslims. It changed the way our parents thought about the world. Uh, and by the time we announced that we were moving into Iraq a couple of years in, both of them were like, meh, okay, pass the ketchup. And it just, it wasn't, you know, a very big deal, which was almost like it took us by surprise. We were like, wait, we just told you we're moving into a country <laughs> at war and you're just going to say pass the ketchup, you know, but, <laughs> but it was a, it was a gift in many ways. They'd already done their grieving that they they were going to live apart from us, that they were maybe going to lose us altogether, that we were going to raise their grandchildren away. And having done that first round of grieving, the, the next step wasn't nearly as difficult. And now both parents have been to see us in Iraq as well, both sets. Hmm. Hmm. What, so what initially brought you to Turkey? I mean, besides you're just packing up your bags and booking a one-way flight to to the Middle East. So what was that, what was that journey like of like, we're going here? You were certainly convicted by something, right? Tell us about that. Conviction. Yeah. I, I talk a lot about this at length in a way that I think is a, a more um, helpful treatment in my book, Love Anyway. But in brief here, I'll just say, um, you know, a product of our time and culture and place raised in the South in a fundamentalist Christian home. And when the September 11th terror attacks happened, I we were headed, our, our response to September 11th in many ways, while a lot of our friends grabbed guns and went off to war, uh, we grabbed our Bibles and went off to, well, frankly, war. Um, I wouldn't have said it that way at the time, I thought we were very, very different from the military counterparts in our life who were going to go bomb them back to the Stone Age. I thought we were more sophisticated, more enlightened. We were going to take the Muslims and make them Christians. It was only later that I would come to understand that I think we had also been weaponized or operationalized into the war on terror. We were, we were in many ways an instrument of the state to eradicate Islam from the face of the earth and make them into be people like us. It was a kind of neo-colonialist attitude and approach to the world. Um, so that was Turkey. I mean, Turkey for us was, was a missionary approach to the world where we were fundamentally right, they were fundamentally wrong, and we went undercover, kind of like CIA agents. We kind of took... We took a little bit from the playbook of Al-Qaeda sleeper cells. Um, it was a little bit 24, Jack Bauer style. <laughs> um, you know, very influenced by that whole era of, you know, the we were all just coming online. Um, we weren't very savvy or sophisticated about how to live a, a unified single identity in the world. So we were, we were all very partitioned and divided in heart, soul, and mind. We kind of had... One message for the Muslims, a public, uh, duplicitous, lying message for our neighbors. And we had a, um, you know, kind of the true story about the, the undercover story about what, what we told our, our Christian support network back home. And um, it, it was a very 
sincere period in life. It was a very, uh, we were very earnest and honest about in, in our intentions for, for that being an expression of love, uh, that being an expression of love, both for our faith on the one hand and toward Muslims on the other hand. But, but in the living of it, I think we hit a ceiling of, of love that we wanted to burst through. Um, and living with Muslims, living as their guests, living in their homes and in their neighborhoods, ultimately their hospitality, their kindness, their faith, who they were, was in many ways a greater force than the lid of our own worldview that was trying to suppress that and keep it down. Hmm. Were you welcomed to Iraq in a similar way as you were welcomed in Turkey? Absolutely. So I had a, had a profound spiritual awakening. That's really the only way I know how to put it. And I, I say that I, w- I would have said it at the time with a little bit of embarrassment or fear because I, I didn't have a category in my fundamentalist evangelical faith framework to have had the kind of existential spiritual awakening or experience that I actually had in Turkey. But I had it. It was an instantaneous moment where everything changed, everything opened up, and I I stood up off the ground where I had been face down in prayer, and I stood up a, a completely transformed person. And we moved into Iraq after that and, mm-hmm. and literally moved in transformed. We, we left behind all notion of converting others and left behind the, the duplicitous kind of uh, worldview and lifestyle, the secrecy. And we moved into Iraq to do humanitarian work in many ways, free from that that baggage and that fear that we had been carrying with us for the first three years, mm-hmm. and 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 yet still found the people to be the same, found them to be kind, hospitable, welcoming, even in the midst of of a much more fraught, violent uh, general environment. Um. But we were changing. I was changing. We we had to grow up all over again. It was like being in in the Christian evangelical world. I grew up in. Uh, you talk about being born again. I was I was what we would have called a born again believer. But this this spiritual awakening or whatever was like being born again again um, into a whole new kind of faith. And and that has come to be kind of my definition or experience of faith ever since. Is just this like constant rebirth or this constant unfolding or this constant new growth and and faith now to me has come to mean a little more about holding things loosely and humbly whereas before I would have defined it as certainty and Mm -hmm. assertiveness and even aggressiveness in many ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you didn't ask about the faith element but that's just kind of wrapping up the the early part of that chapter I guess yeah yeah yeah. and the um the 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 change and the transformation then and, and then into Iraq, I'm fascinated by how did you and your wife, um, who you work together, you two work together in preemptive love. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, how did, how did 
children's heart surgeries become the center of the, the, the beginning of preemptive love. I'm so fascinated by this story because that's, that's certainly how Beck and I first uh, heard about you. I think we were, um, we were early uh, supporters of One Day's, what, One Day's Wages and Eugene. And I think maybe were we running the auction that year or something? I just, I just remember your face in McCall Hall just getting goosebumps um, talking about. And it, was, it, it must have been far enough or it must have been long enough ago when I remember thinking about how some Americans would actually have trouble funding heart surgeries for Iraqi children because of them just being Iraqi. And I thought, huh, wow, this is, this is incredible work that you're doing. So anyway, that's a long, that's a long way of asking you of how did, how did this become um, something that you all did in Iraq? Yeah. So we moved into Iraq with, a a job at a different uh, small NGO, non-governmental organization, like what we call a charity or a nonprofit. And um, it was our first time ever doing humanitarian work. We didn't know what industry it was that we were getting into. We didn't know what war was. We didn't know what a developing nation really was. Turkey, at least the city where we live, was significantly Istanbul significantly well-to-do um sure there were poor people but it was also just a massive massive hub of tourism and capitalism and whatnot so we didn't know we didn't know poverty we didn't know failed state status we didn't know violence we didn't know terrorism as such really and uh the the organization probably wasn't what we expected it to be once we got there and started experiencing it for ourselves. They didn't move as quickly as we had thought one should move in the middle of war. Um, they didn't have the money and the resources that we had probably been led to believe or, or in our own minds assumed they had. So projects were slow. Impact was slow. Bureaucracy was high. And it was kind of in that context of disaffection We'd only been in the country a month or two, as I recall, no electricity for most of every day, no running water. So there was a lot to be frustrated about. There was a lot to be grumpy about. Um, the shine wore off rather quickly. Jessica got pregnant within, we don't know, you know, days or weeks of being in the country. So she was, she was in a morning sickness very quickly. It was just a very rough landing in the country on top of everything else. And so it was in that environment where I would go out every day, I would leave the house, leave her without electricity, without running water. And I would go to this like hotel, I would kind of bounce around from hotel cafe, hotel lobbies, because hotels were the place where NGO workers, uh, journalists, and some well to do politicians would meet up for tea and cigarettes and to discuss the, the news of the day. So I would go to these hotels to work. And I'd kind of just make the circuit, make my rounds every day or every week. And one of the chai guys at the hotel approached me finally with some familiarity and said, you know, Jeremy, you've been coming here for a while. Can I ask you a favor? And he went on to tell me about his little cousin. And he said, you know, she's about yay big and held his hand up about the size of a six-year-old or an eight-year-old off the ground. She's about yay big now. But when she was born, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these years of U.S. sanctions and, uh, you know, U.N. sanctions led by the U.S. and, and the U.S. war and targeting of uh, doctors and nurses by Al-Qaeda and bombings by the U.S. 
there's not a hospital or a doctor left that can save her life. You're an American. I know you came here to help us. So can you help my cousin um, get the help, get the life-saving surgery that she needs? And I, I didn't know what to do. That wasn't what this aid organization that we were working for did. None of us had expertise in that. And so I kind of just held them at arm's length. I was like, nah, man, sorry. I mean, you got me right. I'm American and I did come here to help. So please, you know, don't think me a bad guy, but I don't know how to help you. I, I'm not your guy for that. And he was just really kind and winsome. You know, he could have, he could have obliterated me and said, I was just like everyone else, you know, come occupy our country, destroy our country. And, you know, you don't even help us, but he, he didn't take that tack. He was, he was kind, he was winsome, he was humble. And it, looking back, I think he was just, he kept his eye on the ball. The ball was get my niece or cousin a, a life-saving surgery. And to do that, he knew that sweetness and kindness and flattery would get him farther. And he, he pressed in, he stayed in the conversation with me, encouraged me to take a meeting with the family. So a couple of days later, cousin, dad, comes to the cafe and we meet up and he brought his little girl with him and um, dad sat her down across the table from me and she colored on a napkin while dad and I tried to figure out what this medical report said. And at the bottom of the medical report, below the Arabic, below the Kurdish doctors that he'd seen, it said in big English Latin letters, whole in heart. And that was so easy to understand and so easy to picture the solution for it, a hole, you patch a hole up that I, I think suddenly this very complex situation in a very complex country felt doable. You know, someone just needs to patch this girl's hole. And so I agreed very reluctantly to take the report and knock on a few doors for her and see what we could do. And my very first phone call, the person on the other line was like, I know exactly what to do. Bring me the report. And we were kind of off to the off to the races. Who did you call? I called a, a, a friend of a friend who, you know, when you buy a new car and then suddenly you start seeing that car everywhere on the highway. <laughs> it, it was that kind of environment where uh, I never knew this problem even existed. And then once we started asking around about it, a lot of other people did know the problem existed. And someone pointed me in a particular general direction and they knew what to do. How soon after was she able to receive the surgery? The thing is, I don't, sadly, I don't know if she got the surgery because I didn't know we were starting a whole thing at that point. I, I didn't know we were starting an organization. I didn't know we were starting a movement. I didn't know we were going to end up in all these countries. For me, it was just, I mean, if I'm being honest, part of it was I didn't want to shame myself such that I couldn't go back to one of my favorite cafes anymore by not doing anything. And so this wasn't pure altruism for me. There was, there was some altruism. There was some kindness and some sense that a, a life hanged in the balance. But, but some of it too, if I had to guess, I can't really access that part of me, but if I had to guess and think back about it, I was probably going through the motions a little bit and just I, didn't, I wanted to be able to look that guy in the face the next day and say, yeah, I made a few phone calls. I'm sorry, man. It's not going to work out. And it, it was to my surprise that the perfunctory phone call yielded something and we were able to 
we were able to advance it a little bit, but I guess my point is I didn't know to take down the family's phone number. I didn't mm -hmm. know to make a copy of the file before I handed it over to someone else. I didn't, I didn't know to get a cell phone and a backup cell phone. I wasn't a caseworker. I was a social worker and I lost track of the family. And then the main cousin, Chai Guy, didn't work at the hotel cafe anymore. And I just lost track of everyone. And I didn't remember her name, so I couldn't even dig it back out of someone else's files. So, you know, I like to hope she got her surgery, but I, I genuinely don't know. The only thing I can say with certainty is she changed my life. I hope we changed mm -hmm. hers. Yeah. And the impetus for a, a ton of great work to follow. So how did it unfold for you from there? Well, there weren't a ton of Americans around at that time, and there were there were none that looked like me. There were none that were, you know, bald and distinctive, big, goofy grin handsome, like handsome. I can have. And so <laughs> ruggedly handsome. So I, I think I I stood out and when when words started getting around that there was a, a bald American saving kids' lives, I think people just started coming out of the woodwork for us. Mm. And um, the relational networks that, you know, a place like Iraq is still highly, highly networked and familial and, and relational, tribal in the best sense of that word. Mm. Um, we, take, we take care of each other, you know. And so people kept referring others to me, uh, felt like my phone would just ring off the hook. Taxi drivers would, you know, like someone would get in a taxi and say with their little kid and say, take me to the doctor's office. And the taxi driver would chat him up and say, why are you going to the doctor's office? Oh, my kid has a hole in their heart. And he would say, hold on, before we go to the doctor's office, I have to take you to this other guy first. And they would detour to come find me because I'd ridden in the taxi three months prior and they knew that I was the bald American who was helping kids get heart surgery. So we were on the news um, a lot. We we had a high profile sponsorship from the first lady of Iraq pretty early on. So, so people just started coming out of the woodwork and before long we started bringing in world-class surgical teams mm. who were doing, you know, first, we were the first of its kind surgeries and teams and groundbreaking kind of stuff over and over and over again. So much so that we really started to get a, a renown throughout the region. We were getting invitations to Libya, to Yemen, to Iran, and, and we eventually did a lot of that as well. And then ISIS came on the scene in 2013, killed the mayor of Fallujah, which was one of the most notorious cities on the planet probably at that time. And uh, we, were, we were taking a team into Fallujah to do heart operations and the the city fell into isis's hands and our, our contacts on the ground some of them went missing um, under the siege some of them called and said you 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 got to turn around you you can't come in we don't know what's happening and um ultimately that became kind of the setting off point for what you then became aware of as this group called ISIS as they took over yeah. a third of Syria, a third of Iraq, committed genocide against Christians and Yazidis and other ethnic minorities across the region. 
And it was with that that general era, thirteen fourteen, that we we ended up having to pivot our work away from heart surgery altogether, and just start serving the millions and millions millions of people who were being pushed out of their homes. So we started providing uh, relief and jobs to help get people back on their feet, and that's become the the bulk of our work today. Wow. I'm so I'm curious with 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 y'all's mission of you know trying to end war helping with refugees, these heart surgeries. I feel like uh, there's this, there's this part of me, there's pendulum that swings back and forth where you're like, love can solve everything. And you're like, but there's also just pure evil in the world. And you know, with you on the ground, I've, I've, I'm friends with a couple of Navy SEALs who have, have been to these places who are just, you know what I'm like, Hey, how, like, how do we end wars? This, this seems like the right thing. You know, our mission at Mir, uh, what Mir comes from, uh, M-I-R in Eastern European languages means world or peace, you know? So for us, like we, we very much are fans of world peace. And, and one of my buddies uh, who, who's a, a former Navy SEAL is just like, Brian, there are people that are so evil that that's why I exist. And I, and I just, I've never seen that evil. And I don't, you know, I, you hear about it on the news, but like, what is, what is that, what is the reality? How do we, how do you, how do we, how do we as society stop people like ISIS who are, you know, you know, part of me is like, it, it comes from, edu- we need more people educated and systems need to be broke down. But I'm just curious, like from your perspective, being there, how do we stop the advancement of ISIS, but also stop the advancement of uh, segregation and these, these horrible ideas globally? I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, I feel very overwhelmed when I think about that, of like stopping a war without the use of violence. I'm like, well, that's not gonna happen because these people are so evil and then you look at our government and some of the things we've done, we're like, well, we're so evil. And it's like, ah, it's just sometimes you just want to throw your hands up in the air. But I'm curious, you seem like such a positive optimist. I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I'm waiting to learn <laughs> from you. Yeah. I mean, what your friend says is, is important. It's an important part of the conversation that I think all too often one side or the other side of this conversation gets locked out of the room or even worse tries to shout the other side down and call the other side naive perhaps on the one hand or the evil incarnate on on the other hand and um you know before i'd ever set foot in a war zone before i'd ever been shot at before me and my friends had ever put our lives on the line before we'd ever lost anyone. I had pretty rosy, idealized views of love, peace, and how to change the world as well. <laughs> uh, it's like parenting, right? You you have all the you have all the answers, and you know how everyone else should be raising their kids until you've got to deal with then it. You got kids, and then you're like, yep. "Whoa, I got a two year old!" Woo. And so then I moved in, right? Then we moved in and you're staring some of this stuff down and and living in the consequences and the aftermath of it. Um, so uh, so I'll say that as a as a preamble to say I, I appreciate what your your friend is bringing to the table. I mean that I think that is real. I think that is true. And even for years in Iraq, maybe this bears saying, I was able to live in Iraq itself for years before I saw the worst of what I would go on to see. And I, I hope in many ways that I've seen the worst of what I, I will see. But, but I was able to live here 
and, and live here with some of those rosy, that rosiness still hmm. with a relative safety and a relative naivete to what I was saying or espousing. Then came ISIS. And when ISIS was bearing down on us and erasing everyone in their path and the U.S. intervened and bombed a bunch of ISIS convoys from the sky with drones and stopped them from taking over yet another city, I had, it was humbling because I... I felt like the idealized version of our philosophy has merit. Hmm. And yet, for, for this thing, this idealized philosophy to become fully realized, it was going to take time. It was going to take generations. It was going to take, like you hinted at, education and, and cycles of development. And, and we didn't have that. We had seconds before they busted through the next checkpoint. We had we had an hour before they overran the next city. And that's sometimes what world leaders and I, I would say the American president in particular often has to make decisions about. You're not necessarily always afforded. And this I would say this is also true for regional leaders that we often find in the news, be they Iranian or Iraqi or whatever. You often aren't afforded a generation of uninterrupted progress before you're forced to make another no-win decision, triaging the worst of really crappy options. Yeah. So bombing a bunch of ISIS fighters to save a city, is that the right call? Yeah, that's the right call. Will that bombing also provide fuel on the fire to radicalize another generation of ISIS fighters? Yeah, it will. So what do you do? Well, mm -hmm. I, I think you probably save the city and you live to figure out the next one, you know, after the dust settles. Yeah. And and in some ways, that's where we come in. Uh, the, the the SEALs and the Air Force and things like that, they they exist in part to help do that that split second horrible dirty work that really no one wants to know about and no one wants to talk about um i think if we're doing our job well we we should be the ones putting our lives on the line to come in after the dust settles or or as quickly as possible to help do the heavy lift of that generational work so i think the real follow-on question then we fund the military so well to do that dirty work that we don't want to talk about. Are we willing to fund the other work, the generational work like ours, at a similar volume and velocity to see yeah. if it really works? Instead, we what, we, right, what we end up doing is we, we don't even fund it that well. We don't even try it that well. And then we call it a failure and we say it doesn't work. Aiming for peace is foolhardy. Trying to end war is naive. When the truth is, we've only funded one side of the equation. Yeah, it's like the um, you know the the eradication of the the group that we don't like or the you know the evil, so to speak. 
but there hasn't been the end or the follow-up as far as, oh, here's the new leader. We're just going to instill this government because that's what the CIA recommends or, or whatever. And then we haven't done the education or the actual like work of building an economy, which takes time and you, it can't just be a bunch of Americans headed over there and just like setting up shop and then leaving again. And I think that's one thing that we certainly appreciate about you all and preemptive love is that you're, you're working within the ecosystem of the local nature, you're hiring locals, you're working and you're setting up things that aren't just a bunch of Americans coming over and, and setting up shop. And I'm, I'm curious, like how have you seen both in Iraq of, of, of the failures of one and the success of another, as far as the slow, long marathon race of, of development work? Yeah, um, well, we, we've certainly seen the big aid industry's inclination to glom on and rush in and then bop out as soon as the easy money's gone or the news coverage is gone or whatever. We, we collectively around the world have very short attention spans <laughs> and yeah. um, the, the incentives for staying can be can be small the incentives are coming in and we're seeing this right now as we record this uh we're we're about what five days after the twin explosions in beirut um the incentive to rush in to a crisis is high the incentive to stay long after the dust settles and the cameras go home is small. So, uh, so, so we've definitely seen on the one hand, the cycle of throwing a lot of money at a problem without having a deep understanding of the people or the country or the history or, um, or even business itself. I mean, the aid industry is horrible at business. Um, the aid industry is so backward and so ill-equipped to actually do business, um, and yet the aid Which industry, is ironic, right? <laughs> Coming from I the mean, US. <laughs> yes, I, you get so many humanitarians who we all know that we're supposed to be working on sustainable solutions, and we all know that the budgets run out eventually, and we all we all get all this at least up in our heads, but generally the rank and file all the way up to the leadership of most aid organizations, big, small development or relief, you know, the handout or even the so-called development oriented, they tend to all come from inside the aid industry. They, they don't have a proven track record of moving things to profitability. They don't have a proven track record of leveraging market forces. They don't have a proven track record of, of knowing how to do good marketing, um, and yet these are very often the people who are entrusted with hundreds of millions, if not billions and billions of dollars to set up and advise or vet business solutions. And so uh, I'm, I'm very, very pro business for rebuilding countries. I think I think we need both. I would like to see a lot more entrepreneurial thinking inside the big aid world inside the, the aid industry in general. Uh, but, and I don't know what it's going to take to, to get us there. I know that the, the legacy thinking and the legacy programming that has, that has gotten us to this point 
isn't going to work. And so, so for our case, what we've done is we've pivoted off a lot of the, the old way of doing things. And we just started asking billion dollar questions. What are, what are billion dollar impacts that we can make? What are billion dollar segments that we can go after? We started asking, we started forecasting down the road and saying, what is, what's the problem that is coming at us like a Mack truck? And I think forced displacement uh, is, is a huge, huge thing that is going to put so much pressure on various societies across the world that it almost guarantees to create more outbreaks of violence, which could then lead to full-blown civil war. So if we want to work to end war, we can be reactive and only go to the places that are already in conflict and or we can work to be preemptive and actually stop the next war before it starts. So we start looking down the road. There's going to be 100 million people who are displaced from conflict and climate change in, in the coming years. And there, I, w- I would dare say there is, I'll keep saying this until someone proves me wrong, and I'll actually be very happy when someone proves me wrong. But I don't think there's any aid organization out there right now who is asking the question, how can we put 100 million people to work? What is, what is the solution that our organization can build or our sector can build that would have a meaningful claim to put 100 million displaced people to work? When we started asking that question, we started coming up with very different jobs visions and very different jobs solutions than we ever had before. And so that's been our solution is to, to, to be willing to leave the past behind in some ways or, or at least carve out part of our portfolio that, that is not about the past and that is trying to be pure innovation and start to ask those billion dollar impact questions. What, is the, what does that look like you know, before we get to the 100 million and, and hopefully we make steps to change that? But what does that look like? today and, and right now, and, and maybe maybe specifically in Beirut, because uh, we know that Preemptive Love is working there. What does it look like on the ground right now? What is, what is, how does your organization show up right now to somewhere like Beirut? Because you were already working there. Is that, is that right? We have team in, we had, historically had team in Beirut. Um, we wouldn't have characterized ourselves as working in Beirut. Beirut was a hub for our, for part of our Syria work. So we have Got team it. in Syria and we have team in Beirut that work in Syria. Um, So no, we didn't have ongoing work, humanitarian work in Lebanon, but but we had a presence there by virtue of our our team. And so when the the explosions went off last Tuesday, this was not us bopping in. It wasn't us spinning something up. It was it was it was home. You know, from the perspective of our team, it was it was a hometown response. And how how can we not help our team at home in their time of need? How can we not empower them to do for their own country what they'd been so selflessly laying their lives on the line to go do for their their neighbors in Syria for so many years? So it was easy from a from a leadership and a decision making standpoint. We were we were on the ground doing assessments within an hour of the explosions. Wow. And that, I mean, the, the video, the, the videos that are, are shocking and uh, terrifying and you just, you, I mean, the devastation has been unbelievable. Um, and it's just, 
Yeah, I feel, again, it feels overwhelming. I mean, you're doing you're doing the work that just feels so uh, daunting, and yet you you see the videos that you all have posted that were like actual people making actual change and helping one another. And I think that's what at least grounds me is that we think about these big issues, these you know these billion dollar problems, these billion people problems. Uh, it all can just start with one person helping another, and I think that's what was inspiring about watching some of the Beirut stuff. Is uh, I'm blanking on your team member's name there, but but you know he's on the ground helping his family, helping the people that are that are truly homeless, and uh, it's just it's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. What are the bright spots for you right now in your work? What what gives you what fuels you for you know the next day and um and and where you're headed with your mission? Yeah, I think uh, the. There's a lot, honestly. It's, it's not hard to find hope and inspiration and energy for this work. Um, we have a channel on Slack that we, it's our wins channel. And mm. the, the wins channel is, is like wind in our sails. It's, it's stories from our work in the U.S. where we're, we're aggressively working to bring people together across political divides, across divides of racism, across divides of, uh, you know, maybe how you're coming to the table, understanding human sexuality and, and gender. Uh, these things that are such cultural flashpoints that tear us apart. You know, we have a whole programming set that we use globally around some of these societal flashpoints that can, that can lead us to violence. So whether it's, whether it's our work in the U.S., whether it's our work where we help uh, run an LGBTQ shelter in Mexico with migrants, whether it's our work in Venezuela, which is the biggest refugee crisis in the world right now. Um, when you look at the numbers that Venezuela is dealing with and a massive, massive underfunding of the problem, Venezuela is probably the worst in the world right now. Syria, Iraq, now Beirut, that channel on Slack and the photos and, and the story that our team, stories that our team pushes out there is a huge source of light and hope and inspiration. Uh, that, so that's on the daily. When I, when I pull back from that and I look at, at what our team is trying to do on the, on the big scale. Um, so we have these, these kind of like franchise services or these franchise products that we do that are very repeatable. They're kind of blue chip, tried and true stuff. All that's just working. It just works for us. It's, it's food delivery. It's uh, shelter or medical delivery. It's starting small businesses. I love that stuff. It's just there. It just works. Our team is excellent at it. We have these flagship things that we're trying to do. And that, that's the billion dollar idea stuff that we're trying to tackle. And when I look at our flagship work and the things that we're trying to do to reinvent the way relief is delivered so that we can reach unreachable people who, who are locked out from help during like an occupation by ISIS, for example, and, and the innovations we're trying to figure out, how would we get to those people? What could we do with unmanned drone deliveries if we're willing to sacrifice the drones to feed people who are being starved out by ISIS, for example, or, or how can we get food or meds in 
to a, a pandemic epidemic type situation if a refugee camp is is locking outsiders out altogether how could we get help in so the, the the big impact kind of things on reinventing relief delivery and then on the other side of the equation the the revolutionizing the way refugees work so the, the big idea with our our reinvention of refugee work is we're we have we've created a SaaS platform software as a service where refugees can work on the run with nothing but a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And so either you grab your smartphone on the way out the door as ISIS is bearing down on you or the military or whatever, or we work with a, a hardware partner like an Amazon or a Google or a donor, and we can provide you with a $100 smartphone or you know something like that. We get you logged on to our SaaS platform through our mobile app. And right then and there, no matter where you are, if you move from this camp to the next, this country to the next, we're building out a a global infrastructure so that refugees can earn money on the run with nothing but a smartphone. And um, that is so different than anything going on in the aid world right now. A lot of what big aid calls jobs are really just this endless stack of training certifications that they just have some seminar guy come in teach you how to use a sewing machine and tell you and then they report back to a government or a donor that they created a job even though the refugee themselves saw no revenue got no capital for actually starting a business or buying supplies and has no means of actually turning that training into bread on the table for their kids and so we've been saying look enough with the stacks of certificates what we need are stacks of cash. That's all that matters is stacks of cash. And we got to figure out how to get how to get refugees actually stacking up their their money so that they can build their lives back, you know? So mobile jobs on the run with nothing but a smartphone. That's that's one of the things that gets me so, so fired up because mobile is really the only thing that could possibly it's the only answer for my question. How do you provide jobs for 100 million people? There's mm-hmm. only one answer, mobile. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, and this is so obvious, but you're by doing that, you are meeting these people exactly where they're at in their exact situation, whether it's happening right now or it's about to happen a week from now. You know, they have that secure, they have that job security. Yeah. What's we're the, we're hopeful. Uh, it's early days. Um, the app works. People make money. But uh, now that now the game is just grow and scale and do no harm. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, what's uh, what sort of activities or what kind of work are they doing right now on the platform? I'm curious. So it's all largely based around artificial intelligence and the kind of machine learning training that requires a human to be in the loop. So broadly speaking, um, I'll use an example that everyone knows. When you're browsing the web and something stops you and says, we need to confirm you're a real human, click all the streetlights in this photo. what we I just did at, that last week. <laughs> <laughs> at least initially, what we were all doing in that exercise was we were all working together across the globe to train the machines how to read a photo 
and identify a streetlight or a taillight or a crosswalk. That wasn't just a security check. It was, it was Google harnessing our, our brains as free labor and our eyesight as free labor so that they borrowed our cognitive abilities to make machines smarter and to imbue into those machines their own cognitive ability to recognize, learn, and upgrade. Now, there are a million applications for that kind of visual recognition or uh, language recognition or you know pattern recognition, all kinds of stuff like that, that humans are still going to need to be involved in for years, maybe decades to come. And there's also, so that's the work. The, the essence of the work is machine learning, the, the kind that requires humans to be involved. Hmm. That's awesome. The, uh, the robot thing reminds me of John Mulaney has a very funny uh, stand-up. Total side note um, <laughs> of watching, worth watching about the robots, proving to the robots that you're not a robot. It's a good one. Uh, I love that you're disrupting the refugee model of how do we meet them where we're at, like, like you were talking about back. And I think that that those sort of like ideas and thought processes are actually what it will, what will hopefully advance us, uh, you know, in a, in a more just and peaceful world. So I think that's, I think that's really, really inspiring to see that the work is already kind of being, um, accomplished, so to speak, but there's so much more to be done. Um, how for our listeners, for people who are, you know, sitting in their homes, working from home, um, with the, you know, conveniently being able to work from home because our jobs are not, our job sites aren't being bombed or, um, you know, an inept government accidentally leaving chemicals around or, uh, you know, any of that nature. How do people who are maybe listening to this get involved? Um, obviously the, the monthly donations you can, um, how else would you encourage people to, to maybe reframe how they think about aid work or engaging with nonprofits or accomplishing uh, a more or more peace, peaceful future? Yeah. Wow. Thanks. There's, there's a lot there. Um, I, I genuinely believe that one of the reasons 2020 seems like such a hard year and one of the reasons why this last four years has seemed so difficult is because we are actually uh, on the cusp of massive change, massive leaps forward. I know that it can feel like we're sliding backwards, but I think that is actually the wrong perspective that only exists because it's so right up in our face right now. I actually think that we are on the cusp of quantum leaps forward in our empathy for one another, our acceptance of one another. And it's, it's because we are opening up so much more to each other that all shadow looks so threatening right now. It's like, why don't you just get with the program? We're all becoming so much more loving. Why, why are you still insisting on being so antiquated? So I think we're headed in the right direction. I think things are going well, but we, sh we shouldn't get, we can't get complacent. Um, how You asked the question something like, how should people, how, how do we recommend people engage with nonprofits in general? Um, th the change is happening so fast that a lot of the old ways just aren't going to work anymore. 
And so I genuinely think we should, as donors, we should be asking those we donate to, what are you doing to change? What are you doing that's a big idea? What are you doing that's innovative? What are you doing that's pushing the envelope? And then if you dare ask that question, you should give money freely and without strings attached so that nonprofits can innovate. Because we sometimes are duplicitous or, or deceitful. We want, we want to insist on innovation, but we also want to like earmark our money for one certain thing. And, you know, I imagine that if I told you I wanted to buy a mere mug, but I was only going to allow you to apply the purchase price to, you know, this one certain part of your company, like you wouldn't allow that. But it's, it's how nonprofits often have to work is we're not given the freedom to invest in R&D, product development, marketing, things like that. So I think as donors, we need to push nonprofit leaders to have big ideas, to have big dreams, to state things boldly, but then we need to set them free and fund them to do it. Hmm, that's so well said. Um, yeah, those are yeah and then finally I'll say, examples. like, if, it, if people are picking up what we're putting down, I mean, we'd absolutely love to, to have, have your friendship and partnership on the journey. We have big ideas. We're going for big things, and it's absolutely not possible without that kind of uh, backer community who's willing to take a long-term vision of what it is we're trying to accomplish together. So our monthly giving community is a huge part of that. Um, if you've got the means to give month over month over month, that, that is so clutch for us to be able to, to invest in the the SaaS product, the, the jobs innovation products, so that we can really reach to helping millions and millions and millions of people. Knowing that some money is going to be coming in next month is, is central to being able to build something on a global scale. And then we have, a, we have an annual giving circle as well that functions in much the same way where people make a three-year commitment to, to come on, usually at a higher level. People are giving you know tens of thousands of dollars uh, a year to to come into our giving circle and help give us some visibility so that we can make three year plays, three year investments, you know, and, and get our innovation cycle out a little bit longer down mm -hmm. the road. Preemptive love doing some generational work. Heck yeah. The uh, so for our listeners, preemptivelove.org, I believe, is the website where people Correct. can uh, donate monthly, uh, annually. And also, we did a rad artist in residence uh, collab with Dana Tanamachi uh, out of New York. Uh, I am drinking out of the 20 ounce wide mouth bottle. It is beautiful. Dana um, has been a fan of Preemptive Love forever, and uh, maybe not forever, but since she became aware of the brand, uh, the brand of you all, when we sat down with her and uh, launched the Preemptive uh, or basically the artist in residence collab with her. We asked where she wanted to uh, fund some of the money uh, from from this uh, product line, and she said uh, unequivocally, it "Has to go to Preemptive Love." And so, Charlie reached out, and it was it was awesome. I think I just looked up the numbers before we jumped on the call, and I think it's around ten thousand dollars so far is going to Preemptive Love, uh, which is exciting. So, thank you to the Mir community. Um, if you're listening to this, you can get on to Mir.com and head over to the Artists in Residence uh, section. You can certainly buy a product uh, and some of the proceeds will go to Preemptive Love. I think it's $5 of each item, but we would 
also love for you to go to preemptivelove.org and just sign up monthly. So um, if you need a new vessel, great. Uh, chances are you probably don't need a new vessel, um, although we'd love for you to buy one. You can go to preemptivelove.org and sign up monthly. Uh, I know we'll be checking it out. I would also really encourage listeners to watch the film as mm. well. It's really easy to get to it, um, at the top of your navigation bar. It just says film. Click there. It's about a half hour long um, and get to know Preemptive Love's work better through that film. Yeah, it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, do you have a couple questions? I do. Yeah. I'm looking at the time. Thank you so much for spending the past hour with us. Just a couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests um, before we sign off and you can elaborate or not, um, or you can pass if you don't like the question. Uh, Although no one's passed yet. You can be the first. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The first one is, is it easier to go alone or together? Woo. Wow. It's a trick question. <laughs> um, it is easier to go alone. But that doesn't mean it's better. <laughs> <laughs> What's one belief you hold that will never change? Love is the most powerful force on the planet. Great answer. This is a fill in the blank. And I always have to think about this one because I can get the order mixed up. Uh, It's don't sacrifice blank for blank. Hmm. Wow. I, there's like 30 options that pass through my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, don't sacrifice. The good for the perfect. Mm. Don't sacrifice. The long haul for a short win. Love it. Don't sacrifice. The morning for bad coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have bad coffee recently? No, I was just thinking about uh, Jeremy using the porgami in Iraq and how he's just, he's dedicated to the craft no matter Ah. who he is. (laughs) Do you have a hand grinder that you like? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, Okay. Name one activity you turn to when you need a reset. Guitar. Oh, nice. Acoustic, just a little acoustic kind of singer-songwriter kind of stuff, yeah. Do your kids know how to play? Uh, My son son got into it for a little bit. He's 13, almost 13 now. Um, So he's he's still still got a ways to go. Yeah. But he he likes it in seasons. Yeah. Okay, last question. You've done really well so far, Jeremy. (laughs) What is one piece of knowledge that you want to impart on the next generation? Hmm. Uh, I, I, I worked really hard to leave behind something that I thought was of profound generational value in my book, Love Anyway. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily know how to sum it up in a sentence or two here, except to say 
we change, we grow, and we don't have to sever ourselves off from ourselves or from each other in order to move forward in health, in wellness, and in integrity. There's parts of my story, there's parts of my past, even some of which we've hinted at here a little bit or touched upon that for, for a time I was ashamed of or wanted to dissociate myself from. And it took me some years to realize I wouldn't be here without that guy. Um, somehow that guy, whatever harm he caused, whatever hurt he did, whatever embarrassment I experienced, that guy birthed this guy. And I am gravely concerned right now that we are collectively adopting a kind of cancel each other out approach to life and living so that even when people say they're sorry, even when people say they've grown, even when people try to turn around and turn over a new leaf, we are so full of cynicism and we're so full of fear and we've allowed ourselves to become so tribalized that we don't know how to integrate our past and include our past and our failures and our growth in our future. The only thing we know how to do is to shame it out of existence and to deny it. And it's a pathology where we're not more woke for doing that. We are more at war with ourselves at the individual level and therefore at the collective level. And so the only way, the only healthy way forward is to really be able to embrace our past failures, embarrassments, shame, sin, whatever you want to call it, and all. And if, if we don't integrate that past and rise above it and keep it with us somehow in our future, it, it will always be a kind of albatross around our necks. Hmm. That is an incredible piece of wisdom to pass on to not only the next generation, but I think this generation. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. just self-reflection alone, I think is a, a place to start. And I don't know if you've never done that before. Mm. It can, it can be, I don't know. I think people don't always want to look back. <laughs> they just want to look forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and the dan- the danger is if you, are looking at that self-reflection, you're trying to become a better human, better person, and all you see across media, social media, is cancel, cancel, cancel for all these mistakes, then nobody wants to admit their mistakes. And for us to be absolutely perfect is A, impossible, but B, it's, it's, not, it's not even plausible to imagine that we can't have mistakes and then get better and improve and to forgive it's we're asking for the impossible. Mm-hmm. And so if we're asking for the impossible, then how can we expect people to even enter into that if, if it's not even being modeled? So I think that's your spot on mm-hmm. Jeremy about making sure that we somehow integrate our past. I think is that what you said, integrate the past with our, with our present, which is very powerful. Yeah. 
Yeah, our lives are like a staircase. Like, you know, the step four steps behind me helped me get to the step that I'm mm-hmm. on now. So, yeah. And, and if you it hurts really bad when you fall down the stairs, but you got to get back <laughs> up. <laughs> and if if you were to if you were to lop off that bottom part of the staircase because you want to dissociate yourself from that part of your life altogether, then the whole the whole staircase collapses actually. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Because it's it's foundational. And I think yeah. that's the pathology that that we're living with. A lot of us are living with individually, and it's what our society is at risk of pathologizing itself further into right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, a lot to unpack there. Oh gosh, <laughs> so good, uh, Jeremy. Where can people find you on the grams, Facebook, Twitter, uh, preemptivelove.org? Where can people? Um, follow along yeah preemptive love uh we're at preemptive love on all the handles all the all the socials and url there's no dash in there so p-r-e-e-m-p preemptive love i am also on the socials but um, as of this minute my account has been taken down because there's an impersonator out there trying to uh, scam people and raise money in my name. So we got that person uh. taken down, but not before I think they got me taken down and they were like, you know, called me the the fraudster. So I'm working with Facebook to get my Instagram account back up and running right now. But uh, as of this moment, I am, I am, uh, I'm down. So I like, I don't exist. It's not just that I'm locked out. It's like, I, they wiped me or something. So wow. we'll see how that Whoa. plays out. But he says with a smile. Love, <laughs> you know, what, you seem very what, casual about this, that you've been wiped off. The yeah, there are yeah. bigger, bigger problems in the world than my social media presence. But <laughs> follow preemptive love. That'll do you. Uh, awesome. Oh, you also had a question. I did. Um, when do you sleep? Yes, that's we were going over the show notes and I asked Henry, I was like, Hey, I'm so humbled to have a conversation with you because we, uh, so many people that we know have said so many great things about you and the work that you do is, is, is so, so incredible. And I was looking over all the stuff that you've written, two books, you have two kids, you live in Iraq. And I was just like, when does the dude sleep? Not right now. It's, it's, what what time is it? When do you sleep? (laughs) Is it midnight where you are or something like that? So Uh, you're awake at the moment. It's 11. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I have always been a night owl, um, always been a night owl. So I, I do have the capacity to get up at five in the morning or even seven in the morning, but, uh, I'm not normally up at five or even seven in the morning. I I normally sleep in more until like eight or nine and then, you know, get at it. So I, I pick up on sleep in the seven to nine hours when most of you are already awake. And then I stay up till 12 to two working while most of you aren't. So nice. Mm. All right. He's a night owl. I don't know where I, I, I aspire to be a morning person, but I just don't. But then I try to not be a night owl cause I need to shut it down. Cause it just, yep. I'll stay up till like 2 AM. And well, I yeah, mean, so. you know, most a significant part of our team is in the Western hemisphere and I live in Iraq. So I, Jess and I both, um, basically work two shifts. She's chief programs officer. She leads all of our programming all over the globe. And so she's got team from 
Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, but then also Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela. And uh, I, I spent a good part of the evening hours here in Iraq working with the executive team or fundraising team or comms team in the United States. Yeah. Awesome. So, well, I feel like this is part one and you don't want to part two where we talk about all the things about working with your spouse. I feel like there's, yes. oh, yeah, there's so much we here. didn't uncover. Uh, yeah. So stay tuned listeners. There's probably going to be another, another pod in the future. Yeah. What it's like to have a teenager. We have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So we're a yes. little we'll, we'll don't, bring our behind, but <laughs> don't rush. Don't rush it. <laughs> <laughs> keep it slow. Uh, I hope social media is gone by the time our kids are two. Oh, you yeah, definitely wouldn't that be that. nice? <laughs> 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 uh, too good too good well jeremy we appreciate you taking time uh out of your amazing life to have a conversation we're so excited for our, our followers to hopefully um join along with what you're doing we love the work that you're doing so happy to support it um so again thank you for for being on the podcast thank you both big fans of you as well thanks for keeping us hydrated absolutely <laughs> absolutely all right everyone we'll see you soon all right. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode.